I'm Nick Cole Hamilton, and this is Tales from Weird Scotland. As this episode's a little bit different from our usual content, I thought it might be an idea for me to step out of the shadows and into the eerie spotlight to give you a little taste of what's to come. So recently, through our Twitter account, we were contacted by Callum Sutherland, who is a researcher at Glasgow University, and uh, he's on Twitter as Concrete Bodach. That's B-O-D-A-C-H, really worth following his account. He does some really interesting psychogeographical explorations of the city of Glasgow, largely represented through photographs he's taken and which he posts to this Twitter account. It's really worth following. It's some really magical stuff that he posts there. Just before we get started, I wanted to share a little thought that I'd had along these lines. So when I was editing this episode, I was, as a sound person, very aware of the difference in audio quality of the four of us. We spoke using a video conferencing platform, the kind that we're all using all the time during these pandemic years, and now it made me think a little bit about some of the things which we talk about today, particularly the work of Mark Fisher. Mark Fisher was a cultural theorist from the United Kingdom who sadly passed away a few years ago. In particular, one of the theories he was very instrumental, not in creating, but in sort of bringing into the discourse of cultural theory was the idea of hauntology. And he really identified, or to my reading of it, he identified one of the key sonic signatures of hauntology, this idea of the slow cancellation of the future and lost pasts and things like this, the the kind of sonic signifier that he identifies most with this is the hiss of analog tape and recording equipment and old technology such as that. And these sounds, this sound of tape warmth, saturation, that kind of thing, they've really become very ubiquitous in the last few sort of five, ten years, maybe particularly popularised through genres of music such as lo-fi and hypnagogic pop and things like that. And indeed, these technologies are really fetishised by producers of these kind of genres. I myself use a lot of uh, analogue gear I'll record a piece of music and then re-record it to a kind of broken tape player, not just to get that scratchy hiss, but also to get the fluctuations and unpredictableness of kind of dying technology. I think it's an interesting aesthetic to add, as do many people currently. And so what struck me, I was thinking about this as I was editing the episode, and I was thinking about this idea of decaying technology and the analogue hiss of this technology being the sonic signifier of this idea of hauntology, And it struck me that the sonic signifier of these COVID years that we're living through isn't so much a sound, but an absence of a sound. It's really the the effect that all of these video conferencing applications that we use has on our speech. The noise-cancelling algorithms that they have, the bizarre attenuations that they give our voices. You can hear this throughout the episode. You'll hear different people using different devices at different proximities and then how the kind of algorithm will treat that. I find particularly it's noticeable in Barbara's voice it's it's really, she was sitting quite far away from her computer and it really chops quite mercilessly into her voice. 
It's a ubiquitous sound. It's something that we would all recognise, this attenuation which is created by these noise cancelling and, you know, it's very useful technology, cutting out all the background sounds and that kind of thing. But it's interesting that such an identifiable thing is an absence rather than a sound in and of itself. Anyway, food for thought. That's enough of me. Without further ado, here's the episode. So, uh, welcome, greetings. So I'm Nick, obviously, we've been chatting a wee bit. This is Barbara and Gordon, as you can see. Um, so uh, what I was saying was I thought it might be an idea for us just to like have a do a quick like introduction, like, hello, um, this is me, this is what I do sort of thing, if you're up for that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, I'm Callum. I am uh, a researcher at the University of Glasgow in uh, the Human Geography Department, and I am I'm backed by uh, the Urban Studies Foundation for and I have have been for the last couple of years, and I've got a sort of year left on that project. And what that project started off as was something called the Geographies of Acid Communism, which I was doing sort of based on writings by uh, the, the cultural critic Mark Fisher. Um, just before he passed away in 2017, he wrote an essay called Acid Communism. Uh, and I felt that that chimed a lot with previous work that I'd done and also, but also opened up new interesting directions for it to take. So that was what I was originally going to do was work on that. I am still working on that in a way, but COVID happened. So things had to change a little bit. And part of what I did in terms of changing the, I guess, the research techniques that I could and couldn't use was to maybe spend a bit more time engaging with the the city on my my own terms or in a, in, in a solo way. So engaging urban environments because um, I'm backed by an an urban research body, uh, so I should probably focus on the urban. Um, and that sort of folded in a bit of psychogeography. And as I was kind of figuring out what I wanted to, to do with that, I stumbled across a project called The Urban Weird, which is associated with the, the folk horror revival group, which is, I think, based, based somewhere down there. It's run by a guy called Andy Paturek, anyway. Uh, who I think is based in Northumbria. That just seemed to me like a really interesting kind of, because acid communism, as I'd, I'd sort of understood it so far, isn't really, nobody's really pinned down partly exactly what it means yet, but also like what it means to do it. Like, what does it look to to do that as a practice? And there are people, you know, like there's a Novara media podcast called ACFM, which kind of exclusively focuses on on originally acid carbonism <laughs> um, and then bleeding into acid communism. But the urban weird seemed to me like some sort of way of actually put it, starting to put some of those principles into practice on the ground through sort of kind of cult cultural and um, artistic kind of experimentation. And I think that's one of the ways that one of the things that uh, I'm interested in is kind of like different ways of perhaps experiencing, but also expressing the weird in some sort of a way and, and figuring out what that means for people, but also maybe what it can begin to do in terms of changing narratives about place, changing cultures around place, 
Uh, and, and if you begin to do that, then you begin to challenge the politics around place, which I'm really very interested in. And, and so I've got into, you know, a part of what I do is interview lots of people who are working with the weird in some sort of a way. So a lot of people who are writing weird fiction, people who are producing art that is inspired by the weird in some sort of a way. So I've done that's that's kind of what I'm what I'm doing at the minute is like a lot of interviews, but also walking in the city and writing about those experiences, looking for the weird and then producing as well a little bit of kind of my own artistic outputs around that, which are, you know, very unprofessional, very lo-fi, but <laughs> but enthusiastically engaged nonetheless. So yeah, so that's that's what I do. And then and I, I, I put that up on a, on a website called uh, Concrete Bodach. So, is that, can it, um, sorry to cut across you there, is the Concrete Bodach, is that a reference to the statue on Loch Long? No, although we did go there recently <laughs> um, to to see it, so I guess like like Bodak can can or Bodak or Bodak can mean a few. Seems to uh, uh, like a lot of some of the the folkloric stories that you explore on the podcast can have a bunch of different roots, right? Like there's there's some some details maybe are like is that true? Is that not true? Anyway, anyway, uh, so I guess. Obviously, it can mean old man, um, but then also I've heard it talked about in terms of like uh, like a trickster or a sort of almost bogeyman or devil-like character. And I guess I was interested in that aspect of it, partly because it's, yeah, this trickster element. So like mixing that with concrete, this sim- seemingly mm. smooth surface to have this kind of trickster hidden within it feels productive in some sort of a way yeah, weird nice. certainly, but also like i guess because like linking it to place in scotland in, in particular this sense of giving giving places even concrete places a sense of depth like a sense of deeper time maybe mm-hmm. and sort of tapping into bother, bo- both as a as a gallic word which obviously gallic's not dead yet it's still here it's still, it's still working but it's maybe it's it was more more popular in the past or a greater extent of scotland but also like referencing folklore in some sort of a way so which again has a has a a vertical kind of trajectory do you know it has a, a past a, a time a, de- a depth mm-hmm. to it so um so yeah that's kind of where where that came from can i ask yeah. Sorry, just before we sort of get into going to like Gordon and Barbara and talking about a little bit about what we've been up to as well, just just about about the weird and the definition of the weird that you use, because like of course Mark Fisher has his like very clear definition of the weird in the weird and the eerie, which I, w- I would certainly invite you to articulate in a better way than I could. But is it, is it <laughs> that sort of framework of the weird that you work from, or yeah, like how how what is the weird to you? I suppose is what I'm asking. Yeah, so I guess like part of the project is like exploring a little bit what it means for for lots of different people. But I guess Mark Fisher's definition is this sense of things being conjoined that shouldn't be conjoined. So like the touching or meeting of worlds that ordinarily wouldn't be seen next to one another or, or that you wouldn't be able to ordinarily pass from one into the other one, right? 
So it's this sense of things being put together that really don't belong together. And weird with a why, I guess, like can incorporate some of that. But it, I think that it, it, it actually weird with a why is a really good example of how those two things work together because one of the ways, I guess, of interpreting weird with a why is like as fate, as this, mm. as some sort of cyclical time or time or deep time kind of coming back and repeating and repeating and repeating. And like that is one really powerful example of how Mark Fisher's sort of maybe broader definition works. This clashing of, yeah, but I experience time as linear. My my everyday experience is that one thing happens and then another thing happens and then another thing happens. And those are all sort of in a neat cause and effect line that kind of stretches out into the future and is creates possibility, creates, you know, it's always changing. Right. But weird with a why is like this cyclical time. And yeah, we experience that at points, right? We experience mm. things that seem to recur without us necessarily knowing why or being conscious of why at least they're happening. And so that that clashing of, yeah, but I should be moving forward and yet um held back by this recurring thing that mm. keeps coming back back and back again so it's i guess that's a more specific articulation of the weird but sits within mark fisher's kind of bigger project and so i'm really interested in kind of fate and looping time and and all and all that sort of thing as well as sort of maybe stuff that maybe appears more aesthetically obviously weird so like david lynch's films are like a really good mm -hmm. good example of this kind of um so one of, one of the ways that Mark Fisher talks about that in terms of how worlds get connected that shouldn't is that David Lynch's films often have a very loose distinction or undetectable distinction between real life dream worlds, but also whose dream and whose mm. life, right? So there's this, well, Mark Fisher would say like an ont ontological rabbit warren right? <laughs> between different dreams and different people. So this thing that's supposed to be, it's just in your head as an individual person, a dream. No, it's like your dream connects you to everybody else's dream and everybody else's life. And that's, that's a way, another way of sort of like thinking about the weird. So yeah, so that I kind of, have that broad definition of it, but are, I'm really into exploring lots of different ways in which it crops up. Yeah, so, yeah. totally. So, uh, Barbara, do you want to say hello and introduce yourself? Well, I can say hello and introduce myself. Hello, Callum. It's really interesting to meet you, and uh, we've read through yeah. all of your, what your current work is, and it's interesting to hear where you're coming from with this. Um, yeah. I got involved with the the guys and the the the. Tales from Weird Scotland about a year ago now, I think, yeah. And um, yeah. I've always had a, a, a sort of interest in the weird, the wonderful history, and I'm interested in what you're saying about place, because mm. probably of the three of us, I might be the biggest of the sceptics as to, you know, what what is real and what is not real and what can be explained and what can't be explained and what is just, you know, people going off on some kind of strange tangent, but I yeah. feel very strongly about place. Mm. Um, and there's places that I have visited where I feel that there is something happening mm. and it's very hard to explain why. Mm. Um, 
and uh, it, it, it may be a place where there has been some kind of a, a, a major event that we know about, something that we don't know about at all. And when you're talking about the urban environment, so much has been built on and built on and built on. You're talking about what is modern and what is should not appear to be anything other than exactly what it is, 20th, 21st century. Um, it can have something about it that is very strange. And whether that has been part of its in-building um, because of the architect's vision, I don't know. But I mean, my principal interest has been in, in the historical events and then looking at um, the strange things that happen mm. and why we can't explain it and why we would want to take that forward and investigate it further. Um, we've come across quite a lot of interesting little bits and pieces that haven't appeared into our um, podcasts as such at the moment, but um, we might delve in a little bit more. Um, and this idea of being cyclical, things keep coming back. I, I think there's a lot of there's a lot of mileage in that. I think it's really true. Otherwise, why would you get repeat issues happening with new people? And why is it happening to some people and not others? People who are um, otherwise not engaged with the the unusual, if you want to put it that way. I think it's, it's quite interesting. I, I was interested in what you were talking about, the David Lynch films, because obviously he has a mind that works like that. And to understand his films and the films of some other people, um, which, which I, I know Mark Fisher looked at, you have to have a mind that works like that. Yeah. But, it's it's really quite interesting. David Lynch is a really good example of that. It takes you if you didn't really realise you were going. Yeah. No, there's like I think even you know Mark Fisher like purportedly sort of like one of the most sort of preeminent cultural scholars of like the last few years, particularly in Britain. And like there is a bit in the Weird and the Eerie where he's talking about David Lynch's films, and he he doesn't quite say this, but he he almost sort of says like comes a point where you just have to go. I don't know how to interpret this. <laughs> you just have to let it be what it is, do you know? Mm. Like, um, that doesn't make it any less, like, great as a film, you know? Like, I'm really interested in what you were saying about places, uh, Barbara, like, and experiences that you've had in place. Like, could you, could you like, give an example of, of that? Um, well, the, 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 there's one particular place which perpetually freaks me out, um, and there is, it, 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 it's almost... A, a, an echoing place for me, and I don't know if you visited yet, but it's One Lock Head in Laird Hills down in Fisher, mm. in the village there, and and it has this overwhelming feeling of sadness for me. Um, it was where uh, the the workforce worked in the most appalling conditions to bring out the the lead from the rivers, and and when you actually learn the story. Um, every time I've gone there, it's like it's it, it, it lowers, it comes in on top of me. And I'm not somebody who particularly thinks about these things. As I say, I went from a historical basis, but there was no doubt that you were looking over. I found I was looking over my shoulder and I was listening for things. And it was it, it's a curious, curious place to go. Um, I think it's worth doing. And it's this that you're talking about, you know, the, the true industrial story, if you like. This isn't this isn't some kind of great battle. This isn't some, although Culloden has the same kind of feeling, there's no doubt that's one of the easiest places in Scotland without shadow of doubt. But if you're, you're talking about a relatively recent thing, and I was speaking to um, somebody who is not remotely interested in the weird and the wonderful, somebody who likes scene dreams and all sorts of practical things. 
And he'd gone down there and I said to him, oh, I said, that place just gives me some kind of strange feeling. And he said, oh, he said, did to me. He said, I'm telling my wife and she's going, don't talk nonsense. And he said, I, he said, he said, did you keep looking over your shoulder? And I said, yes, I did. And he said, well, so did I. And he's a most unlikely person, but yeah. very tuned into people. So I would recommend that, that you, you, you go there with a fairly open mind because it is an urban environment. Well, it's a village environment, but it is, it's a built environment, if you mm. like. So from that point of view, and there's all the usual suspects of places that you go, particularly we're from Edinburgh, so you turn every corner and there's something else to fascinate you. But a lot of that people do try to explain by the, the by the physical geography of the city and by the winds whistling and the har and all of the things that have been talked about in the past. People like Richard Wiseman, who, who come to Edinburgh in particular um, to try to, to find out what it is that people are experiencing. He believes they're experiencing something, but what? is it and why is it in certain specific places so, mm. but that's just to give you something that i think is is an example of something which is a built environment which is worth your consideration yeah absolutely it's um there's there's a guy called david southwell who runs hook land stuff like that and he he talks about uh hauntology uh, and haunting as like He's like, it's a working class issue. Like it's a it's a it's a matter of kind of built environments. And and he kind of talks about like what's what's more eerie or scary is not sort of like being confronted by a demon or something like that. It's kind of like hearing like a child crying in a, in a hospital ward because its mother couldn't mm. afford the, you know, whatever back in the day. So yeah, it's it's um yeah, these hauntings are very much written into yeah, like working environments as well. And, and I, I do think that. I think certainly Warlock Head, I, I use that as an example because it's, a, it's slightly more out there than some of the others, but I, I certainly think it has a feeling. It, it, has, the, it, has, the, it has a terrible, looming feeling of, of, of sadness. It's the only way that you can put it. And yet it's a perfectly ordinary yeah. place. But yeah. you, you, need to, you need to go on the right kind of day as well, I think. But yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting and... Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'll leave you to, to move on to, to, to Nick and Gordon. Now. So, Gordon, shall we hear a wee bit from you? Hi. Do you know, it's, I can't even remember how how long we've been doing Tales from Weird Scotland. I think it's just years. over two years now. Oh. Back in a year ago, yeah. yeah. It feels, like, feels like longer. And I, I, I actually can't remember how it happened. It just, it has always been, which is kind of weird. I suppose... I'm coming from a from a well, actually, given that you've you've referenced Hookland already, so I would kind of say that I grew up on the outskirts of Scarfolk, but the Scottish version in the 1970s. So I I remember the public information films and the Children's Film Foundation. So I grew up with a diet of weird Glenn Michael and Paladin the Lamb on his cartoon Cavalcade on STV. So I I, I kind of grew up in what I think was the weirdest decade of the yes. 70s. Yeah. I grew yeah. up in Edinburgh. And actually, and until Barbara mentioned it just now, do you know what really motivates me? It's that sense of place and an identity, belonging and not belonging, which I think is interesting, especially when it comes from local identity, like hyper-local. Uh, whether it's a village or even a street within a village or a, a, a cul-de-sac within a street. So I think having grown up watching things like uh, The Witches and the Grinny Gog, 
children's adaptation of of things like um, Tom's Midnight Garden and The Moondial, and even things that the children have green now. The ghosts of um, Motley Hall, which hardly anyone ever remembers, but is a brilliant sitcom set in a, a deserted house full of dead people um, in the 1970s, and really quite bittersweet. So all that kind of stuff has just left a lasting impression of weirdness in however you want to spell it. Studied Scottish history at university and Scottish ethnology, uh, what was the School of Scottish Studies at the University of Edinburgh. And that was where it really developed a, a love of folklore and traditions and, and folk histories. I, I, I remember reading, and it's one of those things that I didn't take the reference and now can't find it, but, but one of the last sightings of fairy folk in the Western House, and I can't remember which island, was like during the Second World War. And it was a, it was a, a, a report that was handed in. And the whole issue of what changelings were and what maybe they might have been trying to explain, mm-hmm. I find fascinating. Now, some people have suggested it's children with Down syndrome. That was how it was explained. Um, I don't know. There's no proof. You can't take a TARDIS back. Oh, did I mention the Doctor Who thing as well? Um, you can't take a TARDIS back and find out. But I love these alternative histories and, and superstitions explaining how things are. The sense of place thing, though, when I was studying Scottish history, my, my main interest was in very, very early Scottish history. So before 1200, really. Um, and happy to be clambering about a pile of ruins if it's a hill fort or uh, a very early castle and so on. One of the weirdest places I've ever been in uh, was a very overgrown, judging by the lack of paths, very seldom visited hill fort in a densely wooded part of Mull on the road near Finnefort, where the pilgrims would have travelled over to Iona. And this abandoned um, hill fort, you could still make out the circle of stones that surrounded it. But the the wood had reclaimed it and it was very overgrown. I think it was marked on the OS, but it was very clear that people just didn't visit it. There was no path there. You had to scramble through the long grass and the bracken to get there. And, And went there with a friend on holiday. And the pair of us, without speaking to each other, were just wandering about this massive, massive circle uh, the, the the internal part of the, the hill fort. And without speaking to each other, the pair of us just, uh, we were at opposite ends and we just kind of turned and looked at each other and then both darted in the opposite direction. We just sprinted. And no reason for it at all. We both just suddenly had the urge to leave very, very quickly. And then we laughed about it afterwards. But that was, that was one of the weirdest places I've been to. Very, very strange. But I'm fascinated in the early use of the landscape you know, with standing stones lined up with other standing stones and hill forts. Mm-hmm. Where I live now has got a very dense collection of hill forts in, in a, a very small valley surrounding one of the earliest sites of sanctuary in Scotland, the Holy Well, that was mentioned by Nennius um, as being ancient. So he was referring back, and it's all tied up with Arthurian legend. But that that... Yeah, I better stop talking now because if I get launched into Arthurian legend. <laughs> no, it's it's just been like one of the things that I've really loved about the podcast actually is like the first episodes about Gal Shields. 
because there's just so I don't know. I feel I feel often for a lot of people, Scotland kind of starts at Edinburgh mm. and like and exists north of there. <laughs> but you know, and so coming from the borders, you're always a little bit bitter about it because you're just like, <laughs> oh, you know, we are weird and mucked up in a lot of ways, but uh, we count. <laughs> so. <laughs> I think as well, what we were trying to, I mean, some of the some of the stuff we've covered is very well known, but we were also trying to find stuff that was less well known. And and the reason why I did Buckham was I'd literally just been to Buckham and was reading up avidly about all the stuff down here. And it is, it's a bit like um, Galloway, Wigtonshire, Kirkcudbyshire. They're kind of forgotten places, these places that have remarkable oral traditions and written histories. Um, but rich, rich folklore. I think that's why we'll come back maybe to, there's, I think my favourite folkloric being is one that can only be found in the borders and Leith, weirdly. And that's the Shelley Coat. And it's one specific part of the borders that has this water spirit covered in a shell-encrusted coat. And Shelley Coat pops up in the borders, but then also weirdly pops up in the Port of Leith. And that's it. You don't find a record of Shelley Coat anywhere else. And I think that's pretty remarkable and deserves further investigation. The only other thing I would add about the borders is um, that after Edinburgh and the Lothians and Fife, the borders was the, the one of the worst affected places for witch hunts um, in the 17th century. Um, Peebles um, in particular, some of the stories from the borders about witchcraft appallingly bad, but it's that kind of, sort of the east of Scotland from Fife down through the Lothians into the borderlands and then stopping at the border, um, one of the worst affected places in Western Europe for um, witch hunts, even in this tiny village of Stow, there were six people executed in 1649. Um, off the top of my head, I think Peebles executed something like 29 people throughout the history of the witch hunts. So these are tiny little places in comparative terms, but really badly affected. And it's, it's fascinating that England, compared to Scotland, entirely different in terms of the witch hunts. But we, I think, um, through the marriage of James VI and Anna of Denmark, we inherited a lot of the Danish witch hysteria, whereas the English remained unaffected by, by a lot of that. So, it's really interesting in terms of politics, the politics and identity of brutality. Anyway, I'll stop, I, I will stop talking now because I should. It's all good, man. So yeah, just to give you a wee background on myself there, I am Nick. I am the weird sound doer of Weird Scotland. Um, I did a, a master's in audio design and that was just like the best thing I've ever done. And... Uh, I just love making weird noises and it's really, really good to have something which means I'm doing them for a purpose, you know? It's like I I used to make a, a lot of music and sort of I still make music which has morphed a lot over time, but I think it's really good. Well, yeah, I also have a very strong abiding interest in the weird and folklore and stuff, so it's really nice to be able to combine those two interests. I think... Um, in terms of like my interest in folklore and where that comes from. So I grew up in the Fife Coast and when I was wee, my mum was a marine archaeologist. So she was doing a lot of like, she did like diving on shipwrecks and stuff, but particularly her thing was 
caves, surveying caves and particularly cave graffiti. So like I went around a lot of the sort of caves on the Fife Coast, Jonathan's Cave, Weems Cave, the Capley Cave Network, all that, like a lot when we were young and, and we used to be put to, to good work, sent down tunnels that adults couldn't fit down to try and document what was down there and so on. Um, and I think like, like yeah, it's it's certainly not like a, the urban weird. It's more like, I guess, what you'd call the, the rural weird, right? I think it instilled a sense of that within me. And when I, a few years ago, like I think I stumbled across the, the folk horror revival sort of Facebook page and things like that and was introduced to the term of folk horror. And that really like sort of ignited something in my brain. It really like connected some dots, which for me had always been been there and like been very much a part of, of my childhood and growing up and sort of. I think I've always been a very uh, sensitive person. I don't mean in in like a psychic sense. I think I'm just like scared easy. So how's that become an interest in the the weird and the sort of like folk horror in general? Because you would think that that would make you sort of go like, no thanks to that. Yeah, <laughs> like that's a really good point. It's definitely, um, I don't know if it's a kind of masochism or something. Like <laughs> I am, I am, yeah, I love horror films i can't watch them on my own cannot watch them on my own have to watch them with someone else have to sleep with it like even if my partner is not in in the flat i have to sleep with a light on like not uh, always in the bedroom but like i so one one thing is i get terrible night terrors like really really like a combination of fairly like um benign ones and then also where i'm just sort of like up and about under the bed looking for flaked almonds or whatever it is i'm doing or, or like visions of like entities coming through the walls for me and things like that. So like, there's definitely a lot of intensity, <laughs> intense weirdness going on within my own brain. And yet I'm so drawn to it. So particularly like horror fiction, like reading horror fiction, I just love it. And um, yeah. I got really into Shirley Jackson sort of within the last couple of years. Oh, just amazing stuff. And so I think it's it's very much I, I, yeah you could maybe almost describe it as like train wreck syndrome right like it's it's horrifying to me and it just completely unsettles me but I, or or it's like riding a roller coaster right I, like yeah. I, I get something really strong from engaging with it even if it does result in a lack of sleep almost crosses over into like that kind of ballard thing with crash of like you need to we need these like extreme experiences to kind of like jolt us out of our kind of like boring lives, you know? A hundred percent. Yeah, man. I mean, it's sad to say that, right. But it is, you get home from the, the nine to five or whatever, and you're tired and you're just like, I need something to shake me up a little bit. Which is almost the more eerie thing, right? That's the more horrifying thing is that we don't have the control to like get ourselves out of this, like, nine to five grind right like that's the thing that's the thing that i find really powerful about various connections but um like the the fisher stuff on the eerie is like he he talks about the eerie as this so he talks about it in more general terms in terms of uh there being something where there shouldn't be or Mm. there is something missing where there should be something right Mm. which you can look at in all sorts of ways but i think the way that i find it most powerfully affects me is like in this feeling of like a lack of agency so mm-hmm. like this feeling that i don't have control or become aware that actually something so that's how it works in folk horror is really eerie because the the person who's the purportedly the protagonist or whatever slowly becomes aware that they've 
been controlled the whole time mm-hmm. by the sect or whatever like within the you know within the setting that they're in and then in, uh, you know in the urban it's there's various ways and so there's a guy called adam scoville who who kind of talks about what the urban weird might mean but he kind of talks about more in terms of cla- like it's a claustrophobia so like in folk horror you're isolated because you're out in this big landscape right where where you're not near people and then the few people that are there are able to get you right um but when you're in an urban landscape it's like how does that work but it's it's because you're so hemmed in you're kind of like contained to either like a lot of kind of urban weird films happen within like one or two rooms um or are because you're in a crowd and you're just like you're painfully aware of like how hemmed in you are how well like almost and that's a very uh, alienating sort of alone making feeling but then the sort of eerie sense of lost agency comes from this sense that that you're part of that process right that's the slight difference for, like in the rural it's like you've always been controlled from out with yourself without mm. realizing whereas in the urban environment it's like well i'm com- i'm complicit in yeah. this thing started and i can't stop it Right, like, and it's yeah. So, it, it, anyway, to to make this connection, one of the reasons that I find I'm interested in Scotland with regards to the eerie more generally is because of how culturally Presbyterian we are, <laughs> um, and like one of the tenets, like tenets of Presbyterianism, is predestination. Right, it's mm. a fatalism, and so I kind of find Scottish consciousness kind of inherently eerie in a lot of ways because it's got this connection to Presbyterianism in some sort of way. Obviously, that's very uneven and it's like, you know, we're an incredibly secular, secular at least formally as a country now, but I just feel that there are, and I think this is this is what hauntology is really about, are actually, it's these resonances within something that even though you think you've got rid of it, it still is there. Mm. Formally, it seems like we've got rid of the church, right? Like, ob- obviously, there's still loads of Christians in Scotland. Like, it's but but the numbers are right down, right? But there's something about our character as Scottish people that maintains a certain Presbyterianness to it. It could even just—I mean, the football team have started to stop fucking up, but you kind of almost feel like part of like the football team being so crap is because they feel like they're fated to lose. It's like you would always feel, "I, but well, you know, but we're crap, really." Like even if you're doing quite well, that's a, a whole just bunch of connections that I thought I would stitch together for um, for you. And um, there is a definite Scottish psyche. That uh, it's this back to the you'll have had your tea type mentality, <laughs> uh, where we, we we expect to lose, and we if we succeed, then we know it's only going to be temporary because we're bound to lose the next time, and there's some kind of a glitch in success. Yeah, and it's it's it's, it's it is difficult, and that's a generational thing, actually, largely. I mean, it's 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 still coming through into the the modern generation, if you like, but it has it has been back in the days of, of perhaps more church going, even not church going, but the, 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 the churches of the cities, which were things like the Simis and the like, um, where people would come together and there would be a communality of thinking. And, and that certainly carries on through. I think it's, it's there in, in 
each one of us, you can't be successful. That's just not going to happen. That's not Scottish. But it's quite interesting to look at it in that way. Maybe we're just naturally depressive. It's it's a, it's really interesting to use the word depressive, Barbara. Like, because uh, I think. One of the things that, so again, going back to the Mark Fisher stuff, he's written a lot about depression. And one of the ways that he writes about it is like a fully depressed mindset is kind of one that sort of sees through all illusions. And I kind of feel like that's almost, is kind of like the Scottish mindset in a way because it's just like, oh, well, it's all going to fucking go wrong anyway. So like, so let's not have any illusions about what, about <laughs> how life might be better. Right? Um, but like, there's also something, it's interesting because I feel like that there's something more different in some sort, because Britishness is repressed, right? It is, it's similar because there's like, it's like politeness until you can't bear being polite to you mm-hmm. anymore bursts out you know but this Scottish thing I don't know it's like it's almost like it it's maybe that but like just like sped up I feel like we have a much darker aspect Mm -hmm. to our psyche where like a British person could be almost fooled into being hopeful about something and Scottish people will be standing at saying going nah don't don't get your hopes up do you know it's it's the doctrine of I write you know that's exactly it (laughs) It can be it can be summed up in one word. So me and my me and my friends, we don't do it to to each other as much anymore, which I feel is like a hopeful sign, possibly for Scotland more generally, perhaps overstating that. But we used to have this thing where someone would be we'd be sitting together and someone would start talking about something and they would you know that way when you start to get enthusiastic, you kind of lose yourself in it, right? And you just start talking and expressing yourself and blah, blah, and getting excited and animated, right? And one of us would be doing this and you can see everybody looking around being like, that's them gone, right? One of us would be watch, would all be watching them and then the person would finish their, either finish their spiel or finally make eye contact. And the person that they'd make eye contact with would just go, oh, hi. And it's over, you know. Um, no, it's funny. It's like uh, all this stuff, like, and that story, I guess, is like kind of what I'm trying to open up onto a little bit as well. Is like, I think there is this distinctiveness of place. There's distinctiveness of Scottishness. But um, I think part of what I'm, what I'm interested in is like how we don't close off that in terms of how it changes in the future. Um, So I'm very interested in, you know, how do we create a more, well, a a Scotland that would be more in line with the politics that I would want to support, like which would be some sort of kind of radical left-leaning type of politics, you know, that's cosmopolitan, that's internationalist, that's um, open to difference and otherness and equality and stuff. Do you know, like, so these are all the things that I want, but, and this this isn't necessarily to say that it's bound up with independence at all, but I just remember talking to some older people during the independence referendum and like expressing like why why do so I was a yes voter. I was like, this is because this is the kind of Scotland that I want, right? Like not necessarily 
well, yes, independent, but it's more to do with like the actual the actual politics. Like what like what what is it like for people who don't have any money? What is it like for people who come here for other countries? How much do we tax the rich? But you know, all that sort of thing. And the older people were just like, Oh, you're never gonna like that. We we couldn't do that. You would just fall we'll just fall flat on our face. Do you know? Like, and so there's a there is part of the sort of Scottish identity which is very dark, but that uh, I'm very fond of. But also, there's a there's an aspect to it of like it closes off the future mm. in some. Absolutely, so I, I mean, it's like what you were saying about with your friends, right? Like you're saying you don't do that kind of OI thing anymore so much, and that shows a sign of hope. And that's really yeah. like what you're describing is is a very hopeful thing, right? Of a much more inclusive country and like. All of all of like more egalitarian and things like that, and that's awesome. But that concept of hope does seem fundamentally slightly at odds with that Scottish character, which we've been sort of describing. This very down downcast kind of dour, um, yeah. and maybe it's the weather, maybe it's history. Like who knows where that comes from? But it's like how can we morph that, mutate that, evolve that into a more hopeful mode? Yeah, that's absolutely it. And it's like it's it's hard because I think there is something distinctive about place. And that's and it's really important to acknowledge that. And it's really important to acknowledge how something became to be how it was, right? Because it's easy it's easy to kind of get really conservative quite quickly with that, right? It's like this is what this place was like and this is what it'll always be like, right? <laughs> like that's not what I'm interested in, but I am interested in in how we got to be where we are mm -hmm. now. But then looking onwards, do you know, like, and what, and what can we become, you know, um, and I, and that's, that's why I'm interested in the weird, right? Like, I'm interested in this sense of, of being able to connect to other worlds, right? Like, other, and I don't mean other worlds as in outer space or, or necessarily, although all of these can be helpful for thinking it through, it's like, what, what worldview can I be converted to or, or Scottish people be converted to <laughs> through connecting with or, or realising that place is connected to a deeper history, but also within that history, wider spatialities. So like something that I, I, I thought was phenomenal recently was the, the app that the Scottish National Theatre made, which was called Ghosts. And I cannot for the life of me remember the name of the woman who made it. But it was a, a walking tour of the Merchant City in Glasgow. But you would look through your phone and you would look at something like the Cunningham Mansion, which is the, uh, the, the Glasgow Gallery of Modern Art. And on top of it was like a boat docked in Jamaica, right? Like mm. that sense that these histories are not only vertical below us, but those places are always made up of these wider networks right and that creates this almost like terrifying infinity of worlds that you're yeah. connected to. and it's about thinking about right how do we want to tell the story of place mm. what what story do we want to tell about this place because we could make these almost infinitely different kinds of connections mm. do you know and how does that connect us to people now in other places in the world. So I'm really interested in, so my second name's Sutherland. My ancestors were probably of either a middle or peasant class in Sutherland, in Sutherland whilst the clearances were happening, right? Some of them were 
moved to the Red River Colony in Canada, which is now Winnipeg and still to this day has a neighbourhood in it called Kildonan, which was a strath in Sutherland, right? I'm interested in how how I'm connected to those people. Like, so the people who have been thrown off their land in Canada, right? The Matisse, right? Like, how am I connected to and responsible for them through place, right? Because I, I think for me, place is so important to the politics because it get as you can see, it gets me fired up about it, right? Like, I think when when politics becomes this big thing that is just massive and intimidating and sad and painful and difficult, it can be really difficult to know how to start to engage. But if you use place as a vector for it, that's what I'm interested in. And, you know, and there's other stuff, like I just, like I just being in Scotland, like I lived in Exeter in England for seven years, doing my PhD, and every time I would visit, I'd be like, I could feel myself becoming more myself. And then moving back, it was just like this mass. I'm just like, oh, thank goodness. And I said to my partner one day, I was just like, it feels like anything's possible again. Do you know, like it, it was this connect, this connection mm-hmm. that I have to place connects me to other places and times that I can explore. Whereas not being connected to place that uh, that I have some sort of emotional tied up withness just wasn't it just wasn't doing it for me. That's a really interesting point though about folklore is that it's aspects of hyper local identity and history that is pretty much mostly forgotten. And even if you take a step back and look at place names and the narratives that are there and superstitions and, and stories, especially passed down orally. Um, I mean, I know Sir Walter Scott and Burns, James Hogg in the South, captured a lot of those old stories, which ultimately would have been lost. I mean, Burns is a fascinating character because to some he's a a full red-blooded communist, to others he's a a dyed-in-the-wool blue unionist, uh, an arch-Tory. And it's fascinating that you can interpret them in such different ways. Similarly, Scott, a man of the establishment, had that kind of split personality of being romantically and probably um, emotionally a Jacobite nationalist as he would be now, whereas politically he was very much a loyalist, Hanoverian government man. But you had that kind of dichotomy within him. And I think that the the way that stories are used, and, and especially since the, ad, the advance of mass media, means that local identities have, have been eroded more rapidly than ever before. Um, even since I was growing up, the way that we would speak in Edinburgh is not the same as you would hear people speaking now in terms of just local colloquial words. And in the same way that I think that the media in Scotland is very Glasgow-based, so you don't hear people talking about the Bairns as much as you do hear them talking about the Waynes. I never heard the word Wayne when I was growing up. That was a Glasgow thing. But now it's become a kind of pan-Scottish thing. Similar ways, I think, that superstition and folklore has become a victim of of media as well. And you hear, oh, black cats aren't lucky, they're they're thought to be unlucky. Well, no, in Scotland, in most parts, it was the opposite way round. (laughs) But because the media says something, it's like, oh, no, they're not lucky, they're unlucky. And I think that's really sad because in terms of the hyper-local identities, they're being eroded. And then they just become museum pieces that people don't really care about anymore. I would almost argue that there's another side to that coin, Gordon, that's like, Certainly media is doing that erosion, but then, and I have very little good to say about social media, but I think 
social media is is doing working sort of in the opposite in the way that like like you were saying Callum you're in this sort of subgroup of the folk horror revival about the urban weird and it's it's only really through social media that we can really sort of dig down into these very like small granular interests that we all have yeah absolutely it's a it's a big question i think and there's it's because there's also like social media can just be this like massive bun fight right <laughs> like everybody's just shouting at each other and i think people are starting to to move back to what the internet indicated that it might be able to be used for at the beginning which it so even the other day i went for a walk with um a guy who teaches some classes at the at the uni a guy called ronnie scott who has been really involved with in fact he did his thesis on glasgow necropolis but he's also been involved with a group i think it's called hidden glasgow and there's certain sort of like urbex bits of that urban exploration bits of that which have interest in politics or difficult politics around them, but they found each other by having just having a website called Hidden Glasgow that had forums on it, right? And that all the people on the forums are there because they're interested in Hidden Glasgow stuff, right? And they're like, rather than just being this massive kind of global spanning thing, it's difficult because that t- you need to, you need to pay for the servers and stuff. You need mm. to maintain the website. You need you need someone to be organizing, right? You need you need you need someone to be organizing it rather than just being able to go out and sort of say whatever you want to say. But there, so stuff like Discord now, mm. where people are setting up groups that you need to be like invited to, <laughs> you know, like to be able to talk to people about stuff that you're interested in. I think so. I think that's really interesting, yeah, Gordon. I, like, I really I agree with what you're saying as well about. I, I would see that as like as capitalism, right? Like, and and sort of like global capital and the way that it treats meaning. Like, global capitalism doesn't care about the meanings attached to place. Like, it wants to rearrange stuff as it will, so that money can keep moving you know so that so that a profit can be made out of place and so i think this is one of the other things is like certain places become associated with certain pieces of heritage right so i, I was reading a, a really interesting there's a, a woman called may miles thomas who's a filmmaker in glasgow and she's got a website called the devil's plantation and one of the walks that she does is to Crookston Castle. And Crookston Castle has been, you know, maintained or whatever. It's got, you know, it had um, somebody looking after it. Well, so she writes about it on this blog piece. And then she looks down the hill and there's like people who are in like flats that are like falling to bits. Like, what about their stories? Because Crookston Castle was named after this baron, right? <laughs> like it's it's the history that's been preserved there is a history of the land ownership, right? It's not the history of the people. It's not a folk history or a folklore. And it's not to, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying to like write that stuff out. It's not about being like, oh, that thing that's been kept, like let's let's tear it down because it's like <laughs> because it's like being kept by Scottish heritage or whatever. Why does that get privileged and why is it not situated within mm. all the histories of the time that are like involve kind of like normal people? <laughs> like and you could you could be right, Gordon, that it's because it's lost. It's gone. Do you know it's gone? It's too late, you know, but <laughs> I think I think what Nick was saying about it, there is another side to the coin, and I think yes, since the internet and social media became a thing, 
there are people that are interested in their locality. There are so many brilliant podcasts which look at um, specific locations, whether it's Cornwall or Northumberland or, or Scotland. But from, from the kind of 1940s, 50s, there was this kind of homogenized single cultural narrative. And that even refers to things like language and accent, uh, what was acceptable, what was considered to be maybe, you know, like the, the, the ongoing debate about Scots, whether it's a language or just bad English, you know, that, that kind of polarised opinion. And I think between kind of like the, the end of the Second World War and maybe into the, the internet age, that was where mass media and culture was not reflecting localism anymore. Whereas now, I think you're right, Nick, there's an interest in localism. And there always has been an academic interest, I'm not denying that at all. And when I studied the School of Scottish Studies, it exemplifies that and the care they were taking to, to record before stories were lost. But to Joe Public, I think that was necessarily lost because everyone was sitting watching Coronation Street or Tomorrow's World or whatever. And so localism didn't really matter so much. And I think one of the one of the most bizarre instances of media's effect on local culture was ITV. And since moving to the borders and trying to get to grips with ITV border and how they represent the news in the age of devolution which I find utterly bamboozling because they're talking about health. And it's like, wait a minute, what, what, what? That's not right. They can't differentiate between the devolved health matters and the south of the border centrally controlled health matters. And they've had 20 years to get to grips with that. And I just, it's that kind of example of what? And then thinking, there's someone got, got lost at what, Penrith? Where the hell's Penrith? I still <laughs> yeah. don't know where Penrith is. Um, and it's that weird kind of pan border. Presumably yeah. because they found a hill that was big enough for a transmitter in the middle. And it's kind of weird. It's, it's so strange. And then further down, giving a, a local television company the name of Granada because it sounded quite exotic and a place they might want to go on their holidays. It's like, what? It's kind of weird. It is a little bit scar folky in that it's, it's a, a kind of an odd take on what local identity and localism actually means. So I, I, I don't disagree with what you were saying, Nick. I think, though, that people don't talk about ghost stories anymore unless you have to be interested in them because the articulation of storytelling is not what it was because you sit in front of the telly or if and nowadays you're sitting with your device. So I think there is a difference. But for those... Oh, hang on, I'm going to... I've gone... Oh, Miss Jean Brodie, who for those who like that sort of thing, that's the sort of thing they like. So I think you find your kindred spirit, you find your clan, don't you? Mm. You find well, your weirdos. I think I think it's I think it's interesting because the oral tradition has so largely gone, and yet it's popping up in all sorts of strange places. Like in um, the out in Newton Grange, they have their um, their folk song nights and you know it's things that you don't expect i mean i came from a background of a lot of scottish folk songs and they are the majority of them extremely depressing it is not a laugh a minute up there in the hills kind of thing and the the bairns of deed and all the rest of it and it, it, it is interesting because that's come from what's happened in these areas and the songs live on in a measure, but the stories haven't. And it's, it's interesting to look behind that. 
but um, I don't know though, Barbara, because I think I, I think it's always been like that, but I don't think it's inherently Scottish. One of the things I was doing researching a local history tour for for where I live um, was referencing one of the great Welsh epics, because of course it's written about up here, which was still Welsh speaking at that time, and that's the Gododin, which is the story of the Votadini who lived at Trepreyn Law in East Lothian and Dunedin, which mm-hmm. then became Dunedin, which became Edinburgh. And it's, it's, it's a massive epic poem that basically could have been, the sentence could have been, I, they rode off and they got gupped because they, they, were, they were slaughtered. That was it. That's effectively what happened. A thousand horsemen, a thousand soldiers got slaughtered by the the Northumbrians, um, but it is—it's a—it's it's, it's a bit like you know the epic poems of the North sagas, or even the you know the Greek epics, in that it's a heroic, martial story that would have been recited or sung even in the hall at Castle Hill, where Edinburgh Castle is now, about the fact that the men of the land went south to fight an enemy and they got slaughtered. In the same way, maybe that we we still have a, a tear in the eye, and I don't mean that globally about Flodden, or you could ricochet it forward to 1914, 18. So maybe it's just that it's history repeating itself, isn't it? Yeah, it's one of the, one of the reasons that I actually feel despite really conflict. So I'm being from Hoyk, um, the the common riding like that we have, like I feel really conflicted about it because there, there's been some horrific politics around it in the last few years. Do you know? Like really disgusting stuff, um, but I'm also like, this is like a folk tradition that is like, like there are people who are not going to let it die, and like that's got some really bad stuff about it because they think that you keep tradition alive by keeping it the same, which is not true. <laughs> but at the same time, I feel like, well, that's there's something good about that. About like I was saying before, it's about like a narrative mm. that 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 carries on that continues to change but is connected to what went before yeah i don't know how we like i've I've talked to certain sort of colleagues about this before about how do we get people interested in local cultural production going again do you know like place based place linked cultural production that's um and and that i mean that's why we're the the project that I'm doing I'm just like right I'm just gonna write songs I'm just gonna do stuff and write songs about it and it's about place because not because it because I'm particularly good at it or whatever but because it's just like I'm making something I'm contributing something to the conversation I'm trying to you know get get some sort of like little agglomeration of people around talking about you know about what this place is like and what it's about and what it can what it was and what it can be you know you know i've not had heaps of success with that but there's you know there's odd people who have got in touch being like oh can we you know can we talk about this and you know whatever and i think that's a it's a positive thing you know in terms of like stitching cultural production and like social life back together do you know in some sort of a way because i don't want to it's funny what you're saying gordon like i feel like you know, about mass media and stuff. Because also, how does that fit with, you know, the things that were given a taste for, you know? So, like, you know, you were talking about growing up in the 70s and sort of watching all these weird programs that, like, give you a taste for the strange, right? You wouldn't want that taken away. 
Do you know? And yet that's part of that mass media, right? Um, yeah, do you know, it's it's weird. And until we started talking, I didn't realise I had a problem with TV. It's, it's more just a feeling that, and I don't know whether it's because I'm from Edinburgh and so didn't really notice it in the same way and then lived in Fife for quite some time. And there's that kind of hierarchy in Scotland of which are the good bits and which are the bad bits and which are the bits that nobody remembers at all. Um, and West Fife and Dunfermline, um, people often dismiss it. Oh, you live in Dunfermline, what's there? Actually, an amazingly rich history. Don't you know about it? And that's the problem. Ah, you don't. And then similarly, when you come south, um, people fly through because they're desperately keen to get to the highlands along with everyone else, ignoring kind of the more empty lands and very different lands with their own different narratives and stories and so on. It's kind of that that kind of lazy stereotype about what Scotland actually is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that, that to a certain extent is what I think my problem is about Scottish media. And that's when Scotland speaks, it's speaking with a Glasgow accent. And that's not the case for the vast majority of people in Scotland. And that is just lazy. I mean, even if you watch the news, the backdrop is a view of Glasgow. Mm. Why? What, what actually does that mean? But it's like, why would you do that in a, in, a, in a country the size of Scotland? Why would you have a picture of one city behind you? What, what, does that, what, what kind of message is that? Well, as as a Glasgow liver and lover, um, <laughs> it was going to come to this at some point, wasn't it, Gordon? It was going to turn into a Glasgow Edinburgh fight. They even call Hoyek Glasgow in miniatures. Like, who, who said that? Oh, it's it's been good because of the architecture. It's been called um, a rural Glasgow. Furious! This is fascinating. Tell me, tell me, tell tell me who it is and. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard it more than once. It's because it's because Hoyk is the most built up. It's the most tenementy of the the border boroughs. That's fascinating. Like I guess there's also like we had a lot of Glasgow overspill. I guess like you might call it when the mills were still booming. Like I think there was a lot of people from Glasgow moved down to work in the mills and stuff like that. And yeah, like a lot of. A lot of connections to Glasgow, so that, that I mean that's interesting as well. I wonder, you know, I, I'm not I, I'm I'm buying your sort of like built up tenementy thing, Gordon. Like I'm not I'm not trying to denigrate that point at all, but I wonder how that's maybe been sort of co constructed alongside that sort of like history of 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 migration. Do you know? Um, maybe so. I mean, I don't I don't know. Um, Barbara, Nick, have you heard that before about Hoyk? Well, I've lived for a few years in a little village outside Kelso. Um, so I'm more on the on the on the Kelso side with the the, 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 the very discreetly built environment and the lovely open square and all the rest of it and we can't have any of that kind of nonsense around here kind of thing. Um, <laughs> which is which is true. I mean that's industrial nonsense. Yeah. Good bit of fishing. Um, yeah. it, it, it is quite interesting, and uh, you know, even within the borders, there's there's a sort of a certain industrial heartland, if you like, and it is entirely possible that you, you build what is effective and what is known, and you get somebody in to come up with what the easiest person to find, perhaps, is somebody who built part in Glasgow. I don't know quite what the story would be, but um, it's when you go around the country and you see these. Um, built environments that were built 
on the back of the big estates and they all look kind of similar um, and, and they do have their own certain feeling about them there's no, there's no question but I mean but, but I think I think how it could go, go for a bit of a scrap if it needed it it would be up there um, I think that's I think that's lovely, though, about, you know, in, in the local government reorganisation, when they were creating the regional councils uh, and the districts, when they got rid of the old counties and so on, and Scottish Border Regional Council, they were looking for a place to put their HQ. Mm-hmm. And they couldn't use one of the old boroughs because of the the rivalries between them. Oh, so terrible. They, <laughs> so they plump for Newtown, St Boswells, and you kind of think that the provosts of Kelso and Selkirk and everywhere else just sort of went, you've gone where? Um, <laughs> similarly, similarly, when Fife, the, they couldn't possibly agree between Dunfermline or Kirkcaldy or Cooper, so they went for Glenrothes. And I, I quite like the fact that that, that must say something. I mean, I wonder if, like, because the borders all have their, all the towns have their separate common ridings, like, do you know, like, I wonder what that sort of does for it, do you know, like, the local sense of local identity, local pride, do you know, but, like, I don't see that sort of keeping of local tradition as, a, as an inherently bad thing. It's like, it's how can it be used? And I mean, the thing is, as well, it's like, it's about common land, right? That's that's what the common writing is for. It's about the commons, right? That to me is like an inherently sort of progressive kind of or an idea that is due a sort of progressive re sort of calibration or or do you know of like we need to be holding stuff in common rather than mm. all having our own private stuff, do you know? Yeah, but that doesn't get talked about at all. Like a villager here told me about, they were talking about the, the Lauder riding, when they go up to the Lauder Common, which is between Stow and Lauder, and five miles between the two. Um, and the, the border between the two, between Lauder and Stow, was marked by a, a cairn or a boulder. And over the centuries, whenever they were going up, they, they obviously kind of nudged it slightly when nobody would notice, because the border has been moving slowly towards Stow, so the, the midmark is now just over the hill from Stow. So Lauder has gone that way over the so centuries, amazing. and it's virtually in Stow now. <laughs> and it just made me laugh about common common land and boundaries, because <laughs> um, those folk in Lauder literally give them an inch. Um, yeah. <laughs> speaks very well of people in Stow, very honest, pious people who never dream of trying to move the boundary back. Well, you know, I think I think it's because it would be uphill from Stow. Ah, right. Okay. Whereas in Lauder, it's downhill. So I don't know if that has something to do with it. It's a big rock. I was wondering, Callum, just to... What what you've been saying about this idea of like engaging with with problematic tradition and problematic history and stuff like that, I was wondering if you'd and I, I think you probably will have if you've come across the work of Svetlana Boym. I've not actually no. She's got a book called The Future of Nostalgia in which she's like engaging with the concept of nostalgia and she like defines two different modes of nostalgia. One being what she calls reflective nostalgia, and it's this idea of like sort of cherishing these shattered fragments of memory and using them using them to to both preserve something old but create something new with them and that really made me think about what you were talking about that that sort of tour of the merchant city and then the the, the other mode that she describes is 
um, what she calls restorative nostalgia, and it's she describes it as seeking to rebuild the lost home, right? And it's much more a, a sort of like on a national political level, this putting a glass case around something. You know, it's like what you're saying about like we will we will maintain this tradition. This will not change. This will, you know, and it's important that we do this because we're we're preserving history. And yet, like that, that can also preserve the really toxic parts of it, and it, it doesn't allow history to morph or any, or yeah, culture to change or anything like that. Phenomenal, yeah. I think I've heard people talk about nostalgia in those two, two different ways before, actually. But that's really, yeah. Thank you for 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 bringing that back to my attention because I think that's really, 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 really helpful way of of thinking about it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> feel like i've been ranting on for a for a while there it's all Um, good man is there anything that you would like to ask us i I guess like how how do you guys define weird why 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 are you and why are you attracted to the weird as as a as a concept i guess to kind of use as your title you know I think there's something about living in Edinburgh specifically, and I don't want to get back to the whole Edinburgh versus Glasgow thing, but like, so they say that Scotland is one of the most haunted countries in the world. And they say Edinburgh is like one of the most haunted cities in Scotland. An interesting sidebar to that, I heard sightings of ghosts have gone through the roof since lockdown. And I thought that was so interesting. And they, they were they were connecting like the idea of stress, like everyone was in this heightened stress and you're all in this environment but suddenly this environment feels a little bit more like a prison and i thought that was a really fascinating correlation and yeah i think there's something about living in edinburgh and i think also like so i work in this secondhand bookshop where in fact me and gordon recorded a couple of episodes at the very start we used it as a recording space just because it was i don't know there was there was something quite like fitting about it as a location but i think i think what i'm getting at is living in this like purportedly very haunted city in a very haunted country and then also in my sort of day-to-day working in this place like we we bought a haunted book the other day we have a haunted book in the shop now that's a thing that's going on (laughs) that I've been dining out on um I think it's it's just something which for me is like very present in a strange way you know and I'm I feel very agnostic about the supernatural but I'm also very happy to entertain it you know like it just I find it entertaining. I think it's it makes life richer. The yeah, these stories make life richer. You know. I think for me, it's it's to do with the, to the old stories that have been handed down, the folkloric traditions. And I've always lived in until very recently lived in old houses, and there's always been a story to tell. There's always been something about them. Even looking at the architecture and. Uh, I like the oral tradition. I like people who tell me stories. I like the quirky bits and pieces. Living in Edinburgh, as I do, again, as Nick does, you know, you look at a very haunted city. And it's something which will almost always come up in general conversations. It's very strange that, you know, somebody who knows somebody who knows something strange and you've seen something strange. And sometimes it's the most unlikely people. And uh, I find it quite fascinating because I believe that people are telling me the truth, but what is it? You know, so I, I, I find that from a, a, almost like a scientific perspective, it's really quite interesting. But sometimes you just got to accept that it's not, there's not, there's not an explanation for it. And, and that's what makes it fun. 
Uh, you don't want there always to be an explanation for it. So when I came in on the back of what, what Gordon and, and, and Nick um, are doing, I don't even know quite how I got involved, actually, but never mind. Um, it's gone back like none of us know. It just seemed I to happen. Know, I don't know. It just happened. I, I have no idea either. But but the time you start looking into things and you find out the little oddities, and if you look hard enough, for most of these things, there may be some kind of explanation, but actually I don't really want there to be an explanation. I'd rather it's just odd or weird or strange. Or, um, But this idea of the fairy folk relatively recently, and um, there are certain places that you go to and you can actually believe it. And so, you know, we've explored some of the things that are in the city and some of them that are around the country. So, yeah, though there's there's a lot more out there, as you say, but I just hope that the truth isn't, because I think the truth gets in the way of a good story and not always convinced that's the best thing. Absolutely. So that's where we are with me. Anyway, so Gordon will have his... Uh... It, I suppose it just goes back to, you know, the, the weird TV... 70s upbringing, but also being taken out on Saturdays by my mum and dad to visit crumbly old castles or old houses. And, and that was where um, a love of history was developed. And that never went away. I didn't get any Scottish history in school at all. And I think that made me more determined to study Scottish history at university, which is what I did. Started a PhD in witchcraft, had to choose between eating or studying, so the PhD was abandoned, ended up as a ghost tour guide, and then a very weird career trajectory that was entirely unexpected and about 200% accidental. And then, weirdly, we started doing a podcast, but yeah, none of us can remember why or how. So that's weird in itself. Isn't it? Um, (laughs) I think it's just, it's a love of ghost stories of, and I think actually, do you know, when it comes back to an urban setting, because I grew up in Edinburgh and had local ghost stories, I, I grew up in Christorfen, so I, I, we would occasionally go round to the 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 Duca, where the Christorfen Sycamore used to be until it was blown down, to see if we could spot the White Lady, a very famous local ghost story. And she now lives on in a Witherspoons pub, so that's how well-known she is, uh, on the main road in Christorfen. So there was that element, but then, like Nick said, the Royal Mile and Edinburgh's famous hauntings and so on, an association with the great and the good, because that's who it is in Scottish history that are commemorated. And that's, I think, where it came from. But it's also the ability to scare others is something that can't be um, underestimated as well. And so that's why it's just been a lot of fun. And I think the, the most fun I think I've had on a podcast so far has been the, and, oh, bloody typical, isn't it? Glasgow is the, the Gorbals vampire. <laughs> um, yeah. Because that's just such a bizarre, relatively modern story yeah. as well. Yeah. Yeah, that one's amazing. Like, it's, um, it, it reminded me a little bit of like, you know, these like stories of like, uh, these like German cities in the 1500s or whatever, where they kind of get these dancing Oh, like manias. Yeah, yeah, and uh, yeah, it kind of just reminded me of that a little bit almost, you know, like this explosion out of nowhere of paranoia and, you know, but very seemingly very organized, but also (laughs) completely 
not organized by any or seemingly not organized by anyone right yeah like i i thought it was really fascinating the what i would say the one that has scared me the most from listening to your podcasts was actually the first one was the 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 gala one um Buckham Tower. Uh, Buckham Tower, yeah i don't know what it was about it i was actually talking to my partner about this recently about how like i feel when i'm in edinburgh it feels darker right like it there's a there's a more foreboding atmosphere that i pick up while i'm there that i don't in not anymore in glasgow i think glasgow i used to find really difficult coming coming from the borders you know despite coming from the glasgow of the borders <laughs> um, <laughs> like when i moved to glasgow just the size of the buildings the like the busyness of it the like I, d- I don't know what it was i was really intimidated and it took me a couple of years really and i think there was also maybe a sense of what you were talking about barbara with um was it lead mills that you said were there yeah. that sadness do you know like i mean glasgow had it rough like you know like and i, I know it's been zhuzhed up since becoming city culture like way all the way back then you know um it's kind of had this sheen put on it but like there's still a lot of like it's still Um, a hard place to live for a lot of people and it took me a couple of years to kind of feel all right in it but i think it's the i still feel that darkness in edinburgh even though i know it i've known it all my life whereas glasgow i didn't really know until i was 18 really and I wonder if it is just the oldness of it. I, I wonder if there's this sense of like old equals brutal that I have in my head from, and I wonder if that's like, I remember when I was a lot younger, I watched um, the film of Joan of Arc that was made. I can't remember. It's sort of mid 2000s film. And it was really, it really scared me at that time. But it's like, you know, it's it's this old medieval thing really brutal, really horrible, really confusing kind of religious imagery in it as well. And I wonder if it's like Buckholm Tower, you know, like I know there's a lot of this stuff that you've done is like to do with history and old stuff, but there's just something about that of like this old tower, you know, where I was like terrified. But also I have to give props to Nick because it was it was the sound design. And that is something that we need to come back to maybe as well is like sound is... If it was just you telling the stories, Gordon, it would still be scary, but the sound design makes it so much scarier. So, so much scarier. It's unbearable. <laughs> Do you know? Well, I, like, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful and I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, no. It's like, honestly, I was like, right, I, I really want to get into this. I'll, I'll pop this podcast on. Yeah, I was standing like, in full, like all the lights were on. I was doing the dishes. There's like at one point, I think there's like, there's something like a door slam shut or something. And then you had like a door slamming noise on it and I properly jumped out of my skin. And it's not, it, but, it, but it's because of everything that had gone before that, do you know? Like mm. the the tension and like, yeah, the heaviness, like, yeah. Yeah, anyway. <laughs> I, I actually, I think that's something that we need to, I mean, that, what do we try and scare people on the podcast? It's not intentional, but uh, it is yeah. it, talk about history in a weird way. So I don't know. For, from an oral perspective, like certainly that's how I approach it, Gordon. I think what they're saying is horrible and scary. How can I, 
how can I enhance that? It works. <laughs> you know? Yeah, exactly. I think, I think what you're talking about is the Scottish side. I love the idea of it being deeply Scottish, that you're listening to this terrifying um, podcast whilst doing the dishes. <laughs> because that's exactly what you should be doing, because this... You cannot not do your dishes. I mean, yes. it's it's quite an interesting thing. But I mean, it's it's next next the, the probably the, the the one who gets scared the easiest, isn't it? When you say the three of us, undoubtedly, probably. I'm so, afraid he gets. That's interesting though, because the the scariest content in terms of reading it, the one that made me most uncomfortable was the one episode two, and that um, was the about the lighthouse. Yeah, yeah. So that, that's Tell terrifying. It's, yeah, the and you wrote that, Nick. Yeah, and that, one of the two episodes point. that I've written. I, do, I write one per year. Black Donald. <laughs> can't, I can't have. Oh, of course, of course, of course. Yeah, Black Donald. Do you know it's funny? The Black Donald and the Point. I seem to not include them in the same category because they were not based on their fiction story. <laughs> yeah, they are entirely fictionalized. Yeah. Um, and actually, I think they're far scarier than Buckham because it's that element of the unknown. Mm. Whereas Buckham is a, it's a very well-established story, mm. um, in, certainly around Gala. So it'd be interesting, actually, and interesting if you read the Borders Witch Hunt book by Mary Craig that you've got. Mm-hmm. I mean, some of the some of the stories, you can read about Stow and the, the, the six folk that were executed, but there's other stuff to do with Gala. And it's, it's heartbreaking, it's harrowing. Mm. And it's not that long ago. But then when you read about the, the things that happened in the 1940s in Europe, we're not, it wouldn't take much for it to happen again. No. And that's why I'm, I'm really interested about the fact that um, in terms of the way history does have a habit of repeating itself, the, that we, you know, the fake news and the end of truth with a background of, you know, the climate collapse. Actually, I'm going to depress all of us, really. I haven't had, but, you know, it's, it's the way that history and stories originally would have been held as indicators of how to react or what to do. In terms of that cycle, just stopping. Yeah. yeah. What does that actually mean? So, yeah, so so very interesting. And maybe that's why, given that I tend not to watch the news now, but I'd much rather read about, I mean, Shirley Jackson, I have, I'm powering through Shirley Jackson at the moment. I saw it, yeah. My most favourite author. She's amazing. Um, so good. Because she sees horror in the mundane. And I think that's really interesting. But I also like, think there's something Someone so... standing doing their dishes and then someone stones them to death. There's something so... Yeah, like that's maybe the lottery that you're referencing there. But there's something yeah. so like... I think I'm particularly talking about um, We Have Always Lived in the Castle. But there's something so like tender in in her weirdness because I, I wouldn't describe we have always lived in the castle as straight horror but yet there's that amazing undercurrent of like the the wards that the main character has planted she's like burying coins in a field and she she just has this sort of perimeter of magic which she's established around this this place that she's living in and it is i don't i just think it's so beautifully done like really really beautiful as well as like maybe The Haunting of Hill House or something, which is more, like, straightforwardly horrific, you know? But even then, is it, though? I mean, well, yeah, there, like, there's with el- the ending, you know? Yeah, there's elements of folk horror in all of her books. And actually, when you read about her own life, she's actually like a character in one of her own yeah. books. Yeah, totally. And, and dead by the age of 48. 
um, and a, a really quite a tragic life, actually. Um, but the the observations that they have, and her short story collection, I can't, I actually can't think of a, a similar author who manages, perhaps maybe M. R. James, but in a slightly more Tweedy, Oxfordy, no ladies allowed sort of way. Um, but I can't think of an author who captures such tiny details of terror mm. through the mundane, like through a teacup or a biscuit or a rug. Uh, I just can't think of anyone else who's done that. But maybe that's maybe I'm powering through that because the usage is too depressing. So maybe that's why well, right? people are are thinking that they see ghosts because it's really useful um, alternative to reality. That's why programmes like Most Haunted were so phenomenally successful. Yeah, I mean, it's sad that, isn't it? And it's circling back to sort of what what we were saying earlier about escaping the nine to five, but using fictional horror to escape the horror of reality in uh, 2022. There is that phrase that you couldn't couldn't write it and put it in the non-fiction section, and that's exactly where we are so i mean it's interesting that, that um people are turning more to the weird yeah i think i think one of the things to add to your ghosts people seeing ghosts i was talking to somebody about that this other day but i've also been kind of following it on social media it's like the explosion of zines during during lockdown yeah. zines about local folklore the occult fortiana uh psychogeography you know, standing stones, like all this sort of stuff. Like there's just been an absolute profusion of it during during lockdown. And I can't remember who I was talking to but we're, about it, but we we're trying to sort of be like, right, what, what is that about? Is it just because the only thing you can do at the start is walk around? <laughs> like yeah, more time on our hands. Yeah, so we're spending more time outdoors, but there's something about noticing as well, right? There's something about like yeah. actually Sing what's around you and I think to sort of add a hopeful note in with the stuff about like there's horror in the mundane but there's magic in it I guess as mm-hmm. well and like so I, I, like what I do is kind of psychogeography or I'm very novice at sort of doing psychogeography one of the ways of thinking about that is like trying to sort of find magical places um, within the city and there's part of me kind of likes that but also struggles with it because I kind of think like the magic like the magic's everywhere mm. it's about attentive to it yeah it's not about going to this exceptional place it's about this mundane thing has both like horror and magic sort of stowed away within itself depending on how you pay attention to it maybe the magic is in how do we bring out the, <laughs> the the horrific or the wonderful <laughs> from it rather than... And how, uh, do we, how do we attune ourselves to be able to find yeah. it? I think that's what I really enjoy about your Twitter account. I think if you stumbled across it and didn't know what it is and sort of the, the, the deeper meaning of your process and your intention behind it, you'd be like, this is just a dude posting pictures of... Or, or you don't even know it's a dude. You'd be like, this is just someone posting pictures of like bits of things. Like what? <laughs> But there's, there's like within it, there's some really like wonderful and magical and eerie stuff. It's. Well, I'm really glad that you that you're getting something out of it, and like it is, like it, it it is genuinely me kind of just. It's a very, I don't know how to say it more normally. Like I want to say that the word I want to use is like libidinal, right? Like it's <laughs> like in terms of like that is attracting me right now. Mm. I'm going to take a. Mm-hmm. 
it's completely unreflexive. It's it's not. I'm not thinking going out and yeah. and trying pictures. I'm just like, and and to be honest, like posting all of the pictures is like mainly just so that pe- <laughs> not that the account has a huge following or anything like that, but it's so that I'm just being like, right, I'm still here. I'm still doing stuff so that people know I'm around. Do you know? Because I would. I'm just busy like everyone else is. I would rather be putting loads of songs and loads of blog posts up, but I just don't have time. So I take photos instead. <laughs> I'm kind of, do you know, but like, it's really cool that I've found different people. Like you're not the first person who's been like, oh, actually it's really, I really like, you know, what you, what you post on there. So uh, yeah, like, and it's part of it, you know, uh, as well. It's just, it's kind of, um, it's the least thought through part, mm. do you know? But, uh, but I would agree with Nick. I think what it does is it makes you, you think and you look. And I, I think that's one thing that lockdown has done is it's stopped people in their tracks and it's made them look around themselves more. And like Gordon, I've got a background in tour guiding. And uh, one of the things I would focus on is to stop people from looking at the obvious and start to look at things that aren't obvious because there's a lot more magic in that than mm. the obvious and for the very first time there have been people who've been going around looking at their own local environment and wondering what that is and then they go and they find that there's actually a story behind it and what you're doing is making people look obliquely at things and that's a good thing you know, whether it's 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 just you're looking obliquely at a story article, I think it's interesting, and it, it it provokes discussion. Even if you do end up with say, "I ah, well, right, okay, then let's <laughs> yeah. move on yeah. to the next thing. <laughs> Get that yeah. pee out of your bonnet." <laughs> <laughs> There's a really amazing um, quote that's I heard from someone. It's it's um, Kathleen Jamie. Here it is, and somebody used it in a talk the other day, but uh, the quote is, why not privately mark a moment of attention as a moment of resistance? Who's to say it's not? When we do that, step outdoors, smell autumn in the wind, seriously notice we're not little cogs, little consumers in someone else's machine. We're not doing what forces of destruction and inattention want us to do. It's our way of being, not theirs. It's the simplest act of resistance and renewal. So long as it doesn't become pretentious, a joyless chore, we don't want that. Or worse, mindfulness, which is a bit icky. We want our spontaneity. Joy and spontaneity are part of the supple weave of resistance. I just thought it's a really amazing quote on noticing. <laughs> like, what's the power of noticing, do you know? Absolutely. I've been waiting to share that with someone. So <laughs> you, you were the first people in the firing. <laughs> um, yeah. That was Barbara Buchanan, Gordon Stewart, Callum Sutherland, and me, Nick Cole-Hamilton. If you made it to the end of this episode, well done. It was a long one. Once again, give Callum a follow on Twitter. He's at ConcreteBodach, Bodach spelled B-O-D-A-C-H. And while you're at it, follow us too. We are at TalesWeird, weird spelled W-Y-R-D. Join us again soon for more Tales from Weird Scotland. <laughs>